Well, good morning again. Let me uh, remind you, uh, if you have children who would be interested, in the back there's a, an outline of the sermon that has some fill-in-the-blanks that they could work through uh, during the sermon. Our sermon text is Matthew chapter 20. And uh, before we go ahead and read that, let me pray for our time together. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we, we come because we need you. Uh, we come because we need your mercy. Uh, we come because we need your pardon. We come because we need Jesus and we need to see him for all that he is, and uh, we need to believe in him and rest in him. And we pray that you would show us Jesus this morning in your word, and that you would, by your spirit, enable us to believe in him, to trust in him, to rest in him, in a way that strengthens us and in a way that brings you glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 20. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went, going out, going out again about the sixth and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one on your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. And he said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. When the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, 
and their great ones exercise authority over them, it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Me first. That is often the cry of my heart. Me first because I deserve it. You know, ever since Satan crept into the garden and invited Eve to consider whether God was holding out on her, pride has gotten the upper hand. And not just generic pride, but entitlement. God said, you shall not eat of this one particular tree. Everything else is yours, but not this. But nevertheless, Adam and Eve thought they were entitled to it. Genesis 3 said, seeing it is good for food and a delight to the eyes and desirable to make one wise, she took. It didn't matter what God had said. It was good for me. I want it. I will have it. So I will take it, thought Eve. Why would Eve think that she had a right to that tree? The one thing that God had said was off limits. Well, the serpent had gotten her to question God's motives. And in that moment, Eve ungodded God and put herself on the judgment seat. Suddenly, if, if I'm the boss, I'm entitled to the best. And the logic has stuck in our hearts ever since. We keep telling ourselves the same story, the same lie over and over again. I'm the boss. I deserve the best. I'm entitled to what I want because I'm me. Well, we're going to look at two contrasting views of the world, two contrasting stories this morning. One is the story of me, and the other is the story of grace. The story of me is, is me first. It's, it's, it's a merit-based view of the world. The story of grace is really me last, and it's a grace-based view of the world, not a merit-based view. Well, the, the structure of the Gospel of Matthew is actually really beautiful, and I, I always want to talk about it, and then I always end up cutting it out of the sermon to save time. But it's, there, there's a lot that's happening in Matthew up to this point, and I'm just going to just mention where we've been. That's all I'm going to do. I'm not going to go too deep into it. But Matthew uh, has really been patiently explaining the kingdom step by step since the beginning. He starts out talking about the king of the kingdom. He starts right away with the genealogy of Jesus, announcing that Jesus is the son of David, the Messiah. Then he goes into the righteousness of the kingdom, which is an internal God-oriented righteousness rather than a merely external man-oriented righteousness. Then he talks about the mission of the kingdom next. He says that Jesus came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And he talks about the nature of the kingdom. He, he says that it's presently and partially hidden, 
but we know it's going to be one day fully revealed. Then Jesus talks about the, uh, Matthew talks about the authority of the kingdom, that Jesus came to care for his sheep as the good shepherd to reclaim the lost, and that authority in the kingdom is used first and foremost to reclaim and to forgive. And then we get to chapters 19 through 25, which are really the, the largest section of the Gospel of Matthew, and, and they're about conflict. They're about conflict between Jesus' kingdom and the kingdom of this world. Jesus came to set up a new kingdom, a new world order, so to speak, a new way of living, a new way of interacting with people, a new way of interacting with your neighbor. And that new way comes into conflict with the old ways, with the old authority structures, with the old kingdom's rulers. And we see that conflict beginning to come to a head in chapters 19 through 25. Then, of course, the height of that conflict is from the one side is Jesus' death on the cross. And then from the other side, then Jesus rises from the dead, showing that he has defeated that old order, that old way of living, that old world, along with Satan, its ruler. And so chapters 19 and 20 that we're looking at this morning fall into this section about the conflict in the kingdom. Itself has kind of a beautiful structure. It has these alternating pictures in 19 and 20 between the one kingdom and the other. And so you... Starting in chapter 19, there was conflict over divorce, and then, the, then Jesus talked about children entering the kingdom. And then there was conflict over the love of money with the rich young ruler, and then Jesus talks to his disciples about rewards in the kingdom. Uh, then there was conflict over being treated fairly, the parable of the vineyard that we read this morning. And then Jesus talks about his own suffering. And then there's conflict among the disciples over who is going to have the highest position in the kingdom. And then there's the story of blind men who come to Jesus seeking mercy. And you notice then that even the disciples have gotten caught up in this worldly way of looking at things. And what we're seeing here really is a conflict of values, right? Two distinct sets of values. The, the me first, merit-based view of the world and the, the me last, grace-based view of the world. The story of me and the story of grace. So that's what we're going to look at this morning, those two stories. You can see the outline on the back of your bulletin. We're going to start with the story of me. Well, Jesus begins this chapter with the word for. And for, of course, means that this story is connected with what came before it. And Jesus has just told his disciples back in chapter 19 that whoever gives up the riches of this life to follow him will receive a hundredfold back in return and eternal life. Jesus concludes with the words, many who are first will be last, and the last first. And then it's in light of that that Jesus tells this parable. The parable itself, starting out in Matthew 20, is pretty straightforward. A master of a house, a landowner, a farmer, uh, he goes out at 6 a.m. and he hires some men to work in his vineyard. He agrees to pay them each a day's wage, which would be a denarius, and then he goes out again at 9 and 12 and 3, and even at 5 p.m., he goes out one last time, and he hires people to work in his vineyard. When quitting time comes at 6 p.m., the master pays them their wages. And beginning, he begins with those who started last. So the last are paid first. And the ones who worked only one hour right, are paid first. And he gives them a full day's wage, a denarius which is either really poor business practice or amazingly generous. And so those who worked the full day, right, they got excited when they saw this, 
because they thought this meant they would receive even more, but they too only received the agreed-upon wage, a single denarius. Well, this is where it gets interesting because the men begin to grumble. They think that what the master has done is, is not fair. And so they say in verse 12, the last worked only one hour. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. You see, they're comparing themselves to those who worked just one hour. And they say, we worked longer. We worked, uh, we toiled in the sun. And you have valued us the same as them. You made them equal to us, even though we worked all that we worked. And see, this already, it's, it really is the, the me-first attitude coming out, right? Notice what they're doing. They're, they're valuing themselves in contrast to other people. He did that, but I did this, right? He worked an hour, but I worked in the hot sun all day long. And they have this sense of entitlement, that, that I worked, therefore I deserve. They have a merit-based view of value. We merited more than them. Don't treat us as equal when we are superior. We worked harder. We worked longer. That makes us better. And we sympathize a little bit with these men, I think, because, you know, if we worked a whole day at our job and somebody else came in and worked an hour and they got paid the same as us, we'd be pretty upset because we would think we deserve more than them. But of course, the master says, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? And yet we say, no, that's not fair, right? I want more. Do you ever find yourself grumbling like that? What does that say about your heart? What does that say about what you value? Do you think you deserve more than you have? Do you get upset when others get what you think you should have gotten? How do you view those who have much where you only have little? What does that say about where you place your own value? Do you find your value in what you have accomplished? And therefore, I'm worth more than what this other person has accomplished. Do you find your value in what you can do for God? Well, there's a second story in the chapter that continues some of these themes, and it's the the story of the mother's request. The mother of James James and John comes to Jesus. She and her sons, uh, on, on the one hand, should be commended. They have faith. They have faith that Jesus is the king and that he's about to set up his kingdom, a new kingdom. They just don't understand that kingdom Properly. They, they, they don't realize how new it is. They, they know that it's new, but it's not just new. It's a new kind of kingdom altogether. They don't get that. But they do believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They do believe that he's the anointed king. And so the mother asks in verse 21, she says, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. See, they want the top positions in this new kingdom. Jesus responds by asking if they can drink the cup that he is to drink. Now, that image of the cup is from the Old Testament. It's an image for God's anger against sin. And Jesus, you may remember, in his prayer uh, in Gethsemane, Gethsemane, the night before his crucifixion, he says, if there is any way, take this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. 
So Jesus ultimately on the cross, he drinks the cup of God's anger for our sin. He drinks our cup. And James and John, when asked the question, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? They respond, well, of course, we can drink the cup that you're going to drink. Whatever you can do, we can do it too, Jesus. Obviously, they have no idea what Jesus is talking about. And yet Jesus responds by saying that they will drink the cup, meaning that they will suffer for Jesus, but it's not for him to give away those positions, but that the Father has already planned that all out. Now, when the other disciples hear about this, they're indignant. Uh, Why? Well, they're upset because they saw James and John going after what they wanted themselves. You see, all of the disciples want a position of prominence in the kingdom. All of the disciples want to be first. All of the disciples want to have the authority. They all want to be served. Well, again, what what about you? Where is your heart? Are you striving to be in positions of power and influence and notoriety? When other people get promoted at work, does that that make you burn with jealousy? Uh, When other people uh, get the grades at school, do you rejoice with them? Or do you sneer that they got the grade that you really deserved? Do you expect the people around you to wait on you hand and foot? Do you expect your wife or your kids or your friends or your coworkers or your lab mates to serve you? Well, notice that the workers and the laborers in the vineyard, the disciples, they're all looking out for self. They're they're, they're comparing themselves to other people. They're trying to get the best seats in the house, so to speak. And what are the results? Well, the results for them are grumbling and indignation. Grumbling and, and resentment toward other people. And oftentimes, when you think you deserve something, when you think, you know, me first because I'm worth it, right? And it doesn't happen when somebody else gets first place, when somebody else gets the raise, when somebody else succeeds, where you are just mediocre or worse, where you have failed, it brings grumbling, right? It brings jealousy. It brings maybe even frustration and anger, maybe even despair. I mean, there, there are lots of reasons, right? Physical reasons, relational reasons, spiritual reasons for what we call depression, right? But, but one reason is this, right? You think life is going to go a certain way and should go a certain way. I'm the boss, right? I deserve the best. I'm entitled to what I want because I'm me. And when it doesn't go that way, you fall into a depression. You get angry, right? It's not supposed to be like this. And this prideful sense of entitlement leads to despair when life doesn't go your way. See, grumbling, indignation, right, further down the road become depression and despair. That's where this attitude of entitlement often leads. This is the story of me. Begins with expectation, a sense of entitlement, me first, desire, a sense that I deserve more, I deserve better, I deserve best. But it often ends when those expectations are shattered And it ends with grumbling and jealousy, resenting those who have what we want. But that's not the way Jesus' kingdom is supposed to be. Which brings us to the next story, the contrast, the story of grace. The kingdoms of this world operate based on merit and position and such things. But as we watch Jesus interact with people, we realize that he operates on a totally different principle. And this comes out in a couple of ways in our passage. 
First, Jesus receives the children. Now, I, I need to back up for this a little bit, back into chapter 19. In chapter 19, verses 13 through 15, I'll read it since we didn't read it earlier. It says this, Then children were brought to him, that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. People were bringing children to Jesus, and the disciples, naturally, for the disciples, the disciples rebuked them. Why? Why did the disciples rebuke these people? Well, the disciples don't have time for kids, right? Children, they think, are not worth the master's time. Important dignitaries, sure, right? Religious leaders, of course. Business associates, the socially connected, absolutely. But kids, we don't have time for kids, right? Our time is too valuable for children. And so the disciples shoo them away. But not Jesus, right? Jesus says in verse 14, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Now, our temptation is to read this in kind of a sentimental way. You know, oh, isn't that sweet, right? Jesus has time for the little kitties. But remember, you know, back to chapter 18, when, where, where Jesus said, Unless you turn and become like children, you can never enter the kingdom. And remember that, that we said then that, that Jesus' point was that until you humble yourself, until you recognize your statuslessness, until you recognize that you have nothing to boast in before God, until that point, you can't enter the kingdom. And so when Jesus says, to such belongs the kingdom, what he's really saying to his disciples is, you're right. These children have no status. These children, in, from a worldly point of view, aren't worth my time. They have no worth in the world's eyes. But my kingdom belongs to such people. My kingdom belongs to people who have no value, who have no worth, who have no boast. Because Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of grace, not a kingdom of merit. So we see this in the, in the parable of the vineyard as well. We see it with the master, right? The master is generous to a fault. He doesn't value people according to what they can do for him. I mean, think about it. If you're a business owner, uh, you pay people what you consider their work worth, according to how valuable they are to you. People who work well, in general, get paid more, right? They are the people who get the raises. But the master hires people and pays them what they need not what their work was worth. He values them all the same, uh, not based on what they can do or have done for him. Now, of course, the master in the story represents God, and Jesus' point in the parable is your value to God is not based on what you can do for him. It's not based on how early you work or how hard or even how well. Now, it's hard for us to imagine in life not being valued according to what we can do. Our whole system of school right, is set up to evaluate you on how smart, how fast, or how accomplished you can be. We live by a grade scale. And, and when you get into the, the, the real world, right, the grade scale turns into a pay scale and it starts all over again. No wonder it's so hard for us to understand grace. 
that God might not evaluate me based on what I can do for him, based on how much I read my Bible, or based on how many souls I've saved, that that God might simply love me and value me, period. It's too foreign to be believed. Right? The, the, it's too good to be true. The story that we live by is the one of the early bird gets the worm and hard work pays off, not grace. But notice even the extent of the master's gracious character when he calls even the grumbler friend. Right? He's, he's gracious to the end. And so we have Jesus receiving the children by grace. We have the master's generosity to his servants. And then we have verses 17 and 19 in chapter 20, where Jesus again predicts his suffering and his death on the cross. Now, now Jesus has been trying to teach his disciples about his mission from the very beginning. And they're, they're slow to get it, so he just keeps repeating himself. They're headed to Jerusalem, he says. And while there, Jesus is going to be delivered over, betrayed to the religious leaders. They will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Romans. The Romans will mock and flog and finally crucify him, and then he will be raised. Now, Jesus explains this even again a a bit more later. James and John, you remember, they make their request through their mom. The rest of the disciples get indignant, and then Jesus explains what his kingdom is meant to be like in verses 25 through 29. Verse 25 starts out like this. Jesus says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, there there are people who use their authority to be served. Right? There, there are people who use their power, to, to their, their influence, to boss others around. And the, their goal in life is to get as many people as possible to do their bidding. But Jesus says that's not the way it's supposed to be in his kingdom. It's not me first. In fact, if you want to be great in Jesus' kingdom, here's the value scale. Right? Whoever would be great must become a servant. Whoever would be first must become a slave. True greatness is not found in being served. It's not how many people can I get to serve me. True greatness is found in serving others, says Jesus. That's the way Jesus' kingdom works. And Jesus concludes with verse 28. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is headed to Jerusalem. He's headed to suffering. He's headed to crucifixion and death. Why? To serve us. To give his life as a ransom for us, to suffer in our place, to bear the punishment deserved by our sin. See, we all spend our lives serving self, trying to get others to serve us as well. We, We live life often with this me first, not God first, not others first, but me first attitude. Having rejected God as ultimate, we put ourselves in his place. We think the world is made to bow to our wishes. That's why we get upset when things don't go our way. Because in my world, everything should always go my way. We put self first and we try to get the world to serve us. But Jesus put us first and came to serve the world. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
At any minute, Jesus could have called the angels of heaven to his side, crushed his enemies, reigned on high, having all the nations serve him like dogs. But that's not what he did. He humbly served us. He bore our sin in his body. He suffered. He died. That we might be forgiven for our self-serving pride. Do you find your value in what you can do for God? A me-first, merit-based view? Or do you find your value in what God has done for you in Jesus? The me-last, grace-based view of the world. This is Jesus' kingdom, right? Jesus receives those with no status. He's generous to his servants. And he serves us to the point of death. And finally, Jesus has mercy on those in need. You know, there's one last story in this chapter. Jesus is headed down the road and some blind men uh, hear that he is coming and they begin to shout, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And the crowds, realizing that these blind men are not worth Jesus' time, they tell them to shut up. These blind men shout all the more. And stopping, giving his time, giving his attention, valuing these men, Jesus turns to them and says, What do you want me to do for you? And they respond, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus touches their eyes, and immediately they receive back their sight. Now, it's an interesting story here at the end, because the blind men see better than anyone so far. That so often happens in the Gospels, that that, that those who are physically blind are the ones who really see. Because they know who Jesus is. He's the Lord, the Son of David. He he is the kind of king who will have mercy. And so no matter what anybody else says, they're going to cry out for that mercy. While the disciples vie for position and influence, completely blind to the kind of kingdom Jesus is setting up, the blind men beg for mercy and receive it. See, the story of Jesus is, is one in which the great king comes not to be served, but to serve his people, and to receive the world's worthless, to value people not based on their performance, their ability, their beauty, their strength, but to receive them like children. And this really brings us to the last point, life on story. I was, I was reading a book this week which said, uh, what we think and how we live is largely determined by the larger story in which we interpret our lives. And if the larger story is the story of me, then I will think and act in light of that story. I'm always going to be maneuvering and conniving and manipulating to get me first. But if the larger story is the story of grace, I will think and act in light of that story. Well, what does living in the story of grace look like? Let me just point out three things from this passage. It first begins with begging for mercy. Now, that means, of course, we must see Jesus for who he is, the Lord, the son of David, a compassionate and merciful king. And, of course, we need to see ourselves for who we are. We need to see our own blindness, not physical, but spiritual blindness. And we need to ask Jesus to open our blind eyes. That's the first step into his kingdom, the first step into the story of grace, saying, Jesus, let me receive my sight. We enter the kingdom like children, Jesus says. We must embrace our statuslessness. We must recognize that we have nothing to commend ourselves to God. We must see our sin. We must see our failure. We must see our rebellion. We must see that we have been living a fiction, 
pretending that we were the hero, the protagonist, when all the time we were the antagonist, trying to overthrow the rightful king. We must come to Jesus with our rebellion and look to him as our ransom, as our substitute, to find forgiveness in his death and know that he receives us. He receives children like you and me. Now, of course, if we're receiving mercy, we should also show mercy. We should accept others where they are. Don't have an eye for human advantage, for the wealthy, for the smart, for the strong, for the beautiful. We should treat people like human beings, regardless of where they are on the social ladder. We should come to the aid of the statusless and receive children and spend time with the blind beggars, as Jesus did. And so first we beg for and show mercy. That's what it looks like to live in the story of grace. But second, we we work our heart out for Jesus. We don't work to be accepted, of course. We've already had that covered, right? As if we could somehow merit God's acceptance. We can't do that. We are accepted as statusless children. We, We work because we are accepted in Jesus. You know, the parable of the vineyard is really a parable uh, about people in the kingdom expecting to be rewarded. It's about laborers. And as we saw last week, Jesus does reward his people. But we don't work for the reward. We work for Jesus. And here's what Paul says in in Colossians to servants. And of course, it applies to, to all of us, whatever job we might be in, however we might work day after day. Paul's words in Colossians apply to us as well. Paul says, whatever you do, that covers most things, right? Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So all of your work is unto Christ. Whatever you're doing, it's unto him. Serve him with all your heart. Leave the rewarding to him, right? Leave that in his hands. Serve him and let him do what he wants with his reward. You know he's generous and you know he can do what he wants with what belongs to him. So let him do it. So we we receive grace. We receive mercy. We show mercy. We work our heart outs for Jesus. And third, we serve others. Jesus says, if you want to be great... If you want to be great in his kingdom, we must become servants. If we want to be first, we must become slaves. Now, there's a good and bad kind of ambition in life. We should want to be great in the right way. We should pursue greatness in this way. We should seek to be the greatest servant. Particularly, that means, of course, or paradoxically, that means, of course, putting personal ambition aside. So you pursue being the greatest servant, which means you put your personal ambitions aside. Serving happens, of course, in all different ways. We serve in our vocations. Your daily work is a service to the people around you. We are to serve one another as Christians. We are to serve those who don't yet know Christ. But of course, if you want to know where to start, you can ask this question. Who around you is not worth your time? That's probably the person that Jesus is calling you to serve because those are the ones that he would have served. People who were, who were uh, not worth his time from the world's perspective. That's who Jesus served, people like you and me. But he valued us anyway, and he came to serve. 
This is how we live in the story of grace, right? We beg for mercy and we show mercy. We, we are received by grace and we receive others by grace. We work hard for Christ, serving those around us. And in doing all of that, we point to our Savior. Right? There are two stories. That's it. There's the story of me and the story of grace. Which one are you going to live this week? You can only live in the story of grace when you start as a child. When you see Jesus as the compassionate king, ready to, ready to receive children like you and like me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you receive us not because we've done something great, not because we've done anything at all, not because we've lived up to a certain standard, not because, uh, not because we've lived up to a certain standard of the world, not because we've even kept your law, your standard, Father, because we haven't kept your law. And yet you receive us as statusless people. You receive us as those who have nothing to boast in. You receive us because you, Lord Jesus, went to the cross to bear our sin, that we might have your righteousness, that we might have status in the kingdom, not a status that we've earned, but a status that you give us because you love us and you value us. We thank you for that. We pray that you would work that into our hearts, that we would live that out in a way that brings you glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.